Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Dak Talk, where we talk to interesting people who do interesting things. And with me today, I have the composer, Mez. Uh, Mez, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us a little bit hey. about yourself. Sure. Hey, I'm Mez. I'm an electronic musician and composer. And uh, recently, I came out with a new album of music. This is my return to Vaporwave. I haven't done anything related to Vaporwave for maybe, well, I haven't done anything strictly 100% in the genre of Vaporwave for about three years. So yeah, it's a glorious return with a very intriguing subject for an album. And so we're going to be talking a little bit about that today. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Dak, so much for giving me this opportunity to speak, be on your show. Glad to be here. Oh, yeah, no problem. And uh, third time's the charm. <laughs> third time's the charm. Yeah. So we've attempted, we've attempted doing this, uh, this uh, podcast segment for uh, a few times before, but there's always some kind of technical issue. I think. Uh, like, I think hopefully we have it down this time. Uh, we've done a lot of testing. We've been talking for like yeah. three hours now. So I think, well, not today, but like in general i think we're good now it's my, it's my first time using discord too uh for this podcast so that was a, a learning curve like maybe gave us a few stumbles but i think we're well on our way to doing this finally so we can begin uh maybe first of all i should give an explanation of what vaporwave music actually is because maybe some people aren't clear about it you know what maybe sure that's uh video. that's actually a pretty good idea because i'm pretty yeah. new to it myself True. Like, I think lots of people are aware of it and like they kind of know the general idea of what it's about, uh, kind of the feelings associated with it. The fact that it's a lot of it's uh, basically slowed down samples, uh, but there's so much more to it. So I kind of want to just briefly go into that. So uh, basically, Vaporwave is a it's a it's a style of music that is related to plunder phonics and plunder phonics is a genre of music that's based off of samples of other music. Uh, so that's kind of the, the origin of this genre. It's basically taking nostalgic pop music and recontextualizing it. Kind of taking music that is very familiar and, you know, maybe we would be able to recognize as being something of uh, having significance in cultural or musical, or the cultural musical heritage of our of our world like there's lots of 80s music uh 90s music that's sampled in vaporwave then taking that and putting it into uh like sometimes a very surreal new form and vaporwave is really interesting because it kind of toes the line between like serious art and pop culture like really like goofy meme art too uh, a lot, a lot of it goes in that direction too. But vaporwave is very interesting. I I wrote an article a few years ago comparing uh, Zen philosophy with vaporwave. I think there's a lot of connections there. Like uh, like just to illustrate this, Sengai Gibbon, who was a he was a Japanese Zen monk, um, a long time ago, like I don't know, in the 1300s, something like that. He wrote a haiku that basically went something like. Uh, the sound of a frog farting. This too is the voice of Buddha or something <laughs> like that. So like Zen spiritual tradition doesn't take itself very seriously. 
it's kind of this thing. It's so profound, the ideas that are expressed in it. But at the same time, it reaches that profundity through not through like realizing that if you try to explain things too much, then you kind of miss the point of like the reality behind things. And so I think there's definitely an element of that in Vaporwave. It doesn't take itself too seriously, but at the same time, there's something very profound behind it. And yeah, that's a that's quite a definition of a genre. Wow. But sounds more uh, like I a that... sounds more like a, a, a philosophy over a style of music. But after yeah, after listening to you your have album, to recognize today, can... th this is Mez. This is Mez talking about vaporwave. So this is maybe <laughs> a very unique interpretation. But basically, all you need to, all you need to know is it's nostalgia focused music that bases its sound world on eighties and nineties technological culture and just eighties and nineties culture and uses lots of samples from that era. That's basically how I think most people would, would define it. You know, uh, yeah. before we move on to your album, uh, just after you said that, it made me think, uh, because we're seeing a little bit yeah. of this in the uh, the game uh, the game dev sphere. Yeah, where like going back to nostalgia. Right, but now nostalgia is not what I know it as. Now it's like 90s internet stuff. Like I'm seeing a lot of that pop yeah. up. That's really that's really big in vaporwave too. Yeah, it is actually. Totally. Uh, now that I think about it. There's a lot of um, really interesting uh, vaporwave albums and and art covers, like net, that I've seen. net related stuff. And there's lots of like there's a there's a really big a group of uh, I think it's a duo of artists, Death Dynamics Shroud dot WMV, with the file name attached at the end. So there's lots of vaporwave artists that. That, that definitely take the aesthetic of files and the computer programming and incorporate that into their whole aesthetic. <laughs> that's nuts, man. It's, yeah, it's very, nuts how, how very interesting stuff. art and genres evolve over time. But enough about that. Yeah. Let's uh, let's get into your album yeah. a little bit. What um what okay. so, what is your album inspired by? So uh, so I wanted to do that recap of just what Vaporwave is, because this album is very much Vaporwave but I'm kind of taking it in a different direction than I think uh, than I think most people are used to. So this album is called Jisatsu, and it is based on the life and death of a Japanese pop idol named Yukiko Okada. Uh, and she was, she was a musician in the 80s, the early 80s, who made a, a break into fame and just really quickly she spiraled to success uh she kind of she just out of nowhere she blew up and became just this huge phenomenon in the japanese music world in the pop music world and like her face was everywhere she was in commercials you know people recognized her in just a very short period of time but then sadly after three years under very mysterious circumstances uh, she ended up committing suicide. And that was a huge shock to not only the country, but to the uh, the music industry and people's conception of the pop idol industry, this Japanese idol industry, which was, you know, it's based on this idea of ideal lives and fantasies and creating these icons for people to look up to and kind of marvel at and uh, and celebrate it's kind of like this innocence to it 
that was broken in this scenario in which this huge celebrity uh, that seemed like she was living like the ideal life. Every little girl in Japan wanted to be like Yukiko Okada. And she ends up like jumping from a seven story building to her death. And it was it's shocking. Oh, there was uh, more to it than that, though. And that's what shocked me, to be honest. And what was that? Are um, you talking about the aftermath? No, no. Uh, before before the, uh, jumping off the um, yeah the uh, balcony, um, her manager had found her, I think, at her uh, apartment or where, wherever yeah. she was staying, and she had like cut her wrist and and had flooded her apartment with like gasoline and stuff. So she was yeah. like, really trying. She's definitely to attempting. And it was, yeah, and so to, and to do something like that, um, right after basically doing, you know, you have to wonder what the, the mindset is, uh, as someone. Yeah, she was intent on it. She was definitely going through some kind of mental turmoil that made her not want to exist anymore. Right. And, and no one really seems to have a, a very con i mean granted yeah. my, my research is very limited but no one seems to have a real concrete answer as to yeah why so that's that is such a fascinating thing that's one of the things that really brought me to uh okada yukiko's story is the fact that like maybe in the english-speaking world in the western world she's not as well known but even so there have been two documentaries made about her one of them was a short film project uh, for film school, I believe, where somebody made a documentary that's like 10 minutes long. I think you watched that one, right? Uh, I watched one on, on YouTube. I believe you sent it yeah, to yeah. me. It was like yeah, uh, it's, five minutes long. Uh, five minutes. So yeah, it's, it's pretty short, but it gives you a good overview of uh, her story. There's also a longer documentary that I think is full length that was made by some people on YouTube. Yes, uh, I saw I, I saw that video, but I, I didn't really have time to watch it at the time. Right before this, I took a crash course of like an hour long, just on the uh, the history of the pop idol in Japan uh, industry. Yeah, so. that's so fascinating. So we can go into that a bit too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, but yeah, basically, there's not a huge amount of information in the Western world, but even so, there are a lot of similarities between... Uh, because her memory still definitely still lives in Japan today. Uh, and I think recently there's been more of an interest in the Western world too. But a lot of the comments are very similar. People have their own ideas about why Yukiko Okada felt so miserable in her life. Uh, so like nobody really knows the answer and perhaps we can't know. That's one of the interesting things about just a human a person's mind and their psychology can you really know what motivated them to do the things that they did at the end of their life that's kind of a, a central mystery between any two people uh, on in this world mm -hmm. so what people say about okada and her reason for having been so miserable it kind of tells you a lot more about their perspectives it tells you a lot more about the person making that observation like for example Lots of people think that uh, her misery was caused by the fact that she was just overworked in the idol industry. The fact that uh, like she seemed in all appearances to be living this very glamorous life. But the reality was that you know she had to take dance lessons constantly. She was always taking sing singing lessons. She didn't have a chance to have any friends or to socialize. And she was like a prisoner. Uh, and that just got too much for her. 
And then there's also people who speculate there could have been some frustrated romance involved there at some point. Uh, hmm. There are people who speculate that maybe, you know, it didn't, this life that she had dreamed of, it wasn't what she expected it to be. She had worked, like, if you read into Okada's life leading up to this, like, she worked so hard to get where she, to get into this situation, to become this pop idol. Uh, she, like, supposedly her mother said, her, her mother didn't want her pursuing this, so her mother told her that she'd only give her permission to do it, to go through with, like, doing auditions for talent shows and uh, entering into competitions if she became, like, the top student in her class and got uh, an acceptance letter to, like, a really prestigious university. Wow. So she, like, dedicated herself to getting to the point where, you know, she would have her parents' permission permission to follow this other path. And the fact that she was just rejected constantly by, you know, every avenue she pursued, but she kept doing it until she finally got her break. And, you know, she finally got into this industry. And it must have seemed like a dream come true, right? Like, even me, I'm not, I've never been a pop idol. I've never been super <laughs> famous, but like I've had my own little successes. And when you work so hard and you experience failure time and time again, there's like such a, you know, like an exhilarating feeling that comes from finally breaking through. Right. So, so yeah, you can imagine uh, just the, just the wondrous state of mind that Okada must have been in when she finally broke into this uh, idol industry. And then, yeah, and then possibly it was not anything like she expected. And possibly that kind of led to her uh, her misery. But, you know, everyone has their own opinions. And every time I go on to, uh, like, a video related to Okada, like a documentary on her or whatnot, uh, there's always people in the comments speculating. So there's lots of speculation around her. It's kind of like I like to compare it to a Rorschach test where everyone has their... <laughs> They're, everyone looks at it and they have their own picture that comes out. And I think that picture of Okada's life and death is a Rorschach for our conception of human misery and human pain. Like we think, oh, what is the, what would drive someone to want to end their life? And people have like, oh, probably this, you'd want to do it because of this or because of this. But it's all, each, each instance is a very personal interpretation. So it's almost... A moot point to try and figure out why but in this scenario what fascinates me is why people speculate why and why they have the ideas that they do uh so yeah so that's the situation of yukiko okada and that's kind of why i'm so fascinated by this this story and kind of like this mythology that's surrounded this this figure she's like a an icon for so many things corruption in the music industry uh the dangers of becoming super successful and kind of the prison that success creates for someone too just because you have achieved everything you wanted to achieve in life like all these worldly attainments that doesn't mean that you are necessarily going to be happy in fact we have so many instances in this world where people do manage to achieve all these worldly things and they're still you know they're still they're still miserable, just as miserable as they would have been before, if not more, because of the change, the change circumstance, the less privacy, the suspicion that you have, 
they might just want to be around you because you're famous or you have money. Like it can wealthy people, really wealthy people and really successful people can uh, definitely live in their own mental and societal prisons. And I think that's a thing that many people do not realize. Um, so it's kind of not something to be jealous of. Uh, and I think Okada's story really demonstrates that really well. No, it's, uh, it's, it's funny yeah. that you should say, um, because this is something I've sort of grappled with as, re yeah. as recently becoming a, a content creator. Um, you know, people might be contacting you just because, you know, you do this thing and maybe they're using you or, or they just yeah. want to talk to you because you, I don't know, make YouTube videos or something. And it's, so <laughs> it's all about that. And it's not actually about you. Um, I, I think, yeah. I, think, I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole that you can go down right. human psychology and motivation. And I feel like I've tried to make a concerted effort, um, especially in the infancy of this thing to mm -hmm. make real connections with, certain people uh, yeah. <laughs> and 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 i i don't want to seem i'm sure i'm sure if this thing ever kicks off like you know i'm not going to be able to be friends with a thousand people but yeah that's a diff it's a really difficult thing yeah but when everyone wants to talk to you you kind of yeah especially in the age of the internet right because it's so easy for for people to try and get in contact with you right I, I, I want people to at least know from the, the beginning kind of who I am as a person. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I, I want people to know, like, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nice person. I just want to get to know people. Uh, you know, I'll step up and, and try to, you know, defend mm -hmm. somebody if I feel the need. You know, <laughs> unfortunately, that's kind of how this podcast got started, uh, I feel like. Yeah, the Andrew Allison situation. Right. Um, but, yeah, no, um you said you know fame and fortune doesn't really mm. mean uh happiness and i can i can think of like two examples off the top of my head um mm. jim carrey the famous dr yeah. robotnik uh, totally <laughs> lots lots of comedians of course right they right, get into lots. their art i think that's true of many artists they kind of get into doing what they do as a means of expression maybe they have some kind of childhood trauma or some kind of inherent misery over something and they just feel the need to I don't know, either have some control over the materials of the world or express themselves in some way. But yeah, Jim Carrey is a perfect example because he kind of realized that success wasn't buying him happiness. And so he, he went his uh he went in like a very spiritual route, right? Yeah, did you uh did you see the documentary that they did about um when he was making oh, the Andy Kaufman one? Yeah. <laughs> that oh, yeah. was nuts. Totally. I'm I'm a huge Andy Kaufman fan too, so I had to watch it. And I'm pretty sure Andy Kaufman wasn't that crazy <laughs> sounding as as crazy as Jim Carrey. Yeah, um, he he has Andy a, Kaufman was a pretty nuts guy. I yeah, I, I know, I know. <laughs> it's just he's not around for he us to really analyze it, you know. Yeah, you can watch you can watch through all of his stuff. He's one of those people that was never out of character. That's so fascinating to me. Uh, like, are you familiar with Tim and Eric, the comedians? I'm I'm a little too contemporary. I'm too familiar. I, uh, <laughs> too familiar. They, they, they seem to be all over the place, and I, I love them though. Like, they're actually pretty. Uh, yeah. Actually, pretty funny to watch and pretty surreal. Yeah. I almost say. Yeah, I'm. I'm never sure if they're 
uh, still around and popular because I'm not really sure what they're doing these days. I used to watch Awesome Show when it was first on. Me and my friends like loved loved it so much. Uh, Tim and Eric, Awesome Show, great job. And Tom goes to the mayor, oh. uh, uh, which is, I think Tom goes to the mayor was uh, superior in many ways to Awesome Show. I like. I'm just really fascinated by. Uh, like I love the fact that the mayor was this corrupt individual whose motivations were kind of obscure. You didn't really know exactly why he did anything he did, and it's like this absurdist humor that's I don't think really he knew scary either. and disturbing. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? I don't think he knew either. <laughs> yeah, he probably didn't. That's the impression you get of this character is that he's just oblivious. He just does. He just acts. He's like an empty vessel. It's we so scary. He's like a psychopath, but it's <laughs> hilarious at the same time. We, uh, anyway, we should definitely talk talk about Tim and Eric one of these days. Yeah, put that up. On we'll the... do another podcast on uh, comedians. Uh, but I uh, thought that. Uh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I always I always felt that Andy Kaufman his tradition was carried on by Tim and Eric, because uh, I, I I don't want to put words into Tim Heidecker's mouth, but I think I heard somewhere like he said that he was a huge fan of Andy Kaufman's work but he's another person that's largely in character most of the time but it's a bit different because Tim Heidecker and Eric Warheim live in the age of the internet so of course like there's interviews out there there's clips of them out of character just talking like normal human beings without doing their comic routine uh, but the thing about Andy Kaufman was like there's no footage that anyone is absolutely sure he's being genuine like always doing some character possibly that's fascinating to me uh, that somebody's legacy could be entirely artificial i think the closest uh that i can think of seeing uh tim you know just being tim uh was on like the h3 podcast i think he went on oh, was he was he on the h3 podcast yeah uh for one episode h3 h3 yeah interesting good old yeah, Ethan. i didn't see that yeah. <laughs> um so gonna try to veer back to the album here <laughs> oh, yeah. start talking so, about yeah, we start talking, talking about, about tim like, and eric success and misery so, <laughs> yeah um so uh, andy kaufman's an interesting situation because he was quite successful uh for doing what he did like he was paving ground that was like inconceivable in the comic world uh but i have to wonder if was Andy Kaufman like a happy person? Was he? <laughs> it's impossible yeah. to tell looking at his comic acts. He's a dead man. So like, just like with Okada Yukiko, anything you project onto his personality, you know, that tells you more about yourself than about him. It's just all about how you perceive uh, their their acts, more or less. Yeah. So, but the thing about Andy Kaufman was his comedy was really different from most comedians that become really successful. Because even though he had this surrealism about him, uh, like the same kind of surrealism you have in uh, Tim and Eric, there was still a lot of heart in Andy Kaufman. Like there's a, an almost childish innocence to a lot of what he did. Like just the joy of dressing up and doing weird things on stage and like getting confused looks from people. Uh, like there is just an inherent joy in a lot of what he did. So when it comes to comics, like Jim Carrey, he's a bit wild and like he has that uh, a bit of the uh, Robin Williams cocaine induced <laughs> craziness a lot of the time through his comedy. Right. But Andy Kaufman was weird, but he was more of a he was more of like a, 
like a fun heartfelt heartfelt weird i think like earthbound kind of weird you know what i mean it just keeps coming back earthbound <laughs> yeah everything goes back to earthbound these days it's oh, true man. i came out a huge influence it, on a lot of isn't people. that weird a lot of things yeah like even me earthbound was big growing up for me i remember um I remember when I first saw that game, I was I was living in Japan, and I was probably like nine or ten years old, back when like yeah. Grand Theft Auto Three was like the thing to um, play. So you in, you didn't have the Earthbound experience, but you had that. <laughs> yeah, I had the the PlayStation Two uh, Thug experience because that's what was cool at the time was Fast and Furious and stealing people's cars, and yeah, um, <laughs> and um, I remember a friend of mine. Uh, sort of, sort, sort of, kind of friend of mine. He had an original copy of Earthbound with the mm-hmm. guide, and it was just such an interesting thing to see as a kid, especially as a kid who. Um, ah, it's a sweet guide. <laughs> yeah, I, I really like that guide. Um, but yeah, that was neat to see, just like how different that was compared to everything else surrounding it. Yeah, I guess a lot of the success of that comes from uh, the the creator. What what was his name? It's escaping me at the moment. Uh, Shigesato uh, Itoi. Itoi, yeah, Itoi. Yeah, he's such a he's a unique individual. Like, I mean, he made his his bass fishing game. I didn't play <laughs> I think that. that was his first game that he made, and then he made. Oh no, he made Mother. I think Mother One was his first game, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. You're right. Yeah, Mother 1, then he made his, then he made Mother 2, then Mother 3. So, like, his range of experience, I mean, of course, he was just the creative director, right? Like, he had artists and programmers behind him. Yeah, yeah, he just, he just uh, molded but, the story. Yeah, in. he had such a great vision for, like, a, an artistic vision and a vision for create an exper- creating an experience with a lot of heart behind it that through, even though it's very simple, and like there's not a lot of like the characters in in earthbound don't speak a lot the main characters don't speak much and even the dialogue of the other characters is usually very kind of cryptic and and uh, very terse it's very short not a, there's not a lot of like heartfelt speaking going on but at the same time there's like just this immense charm that just oozes from the game so itoi is very he's it's very impressive for that reason he's one of those people that People like Andy Kaufman, you just love. <laughs> there's so much love that he puts into what he does that you just can't help but feel it. Uh, yeah, but a- anyway, Earthbound. So to tie tie to tie Earthbound into Okada, uh, I I I often have to wonder, like, how much of an impact did Okada's death have on people? Because Itoi, I'm guessing Itoi would have heard about it, oh, and yeah. I'm not saying that it had any influence on earthbound but like i wonder what he made of that whole thing you know um you know what gigas was based off of right the last boss yeah, it was a childhood trauma uh, movie that he watched right before. right yeah there was like a bad scene in a movie and it just really messed with him yeah because he accidentally walked into the theater as a kid it's um, the same thing with the change chain chomps in the mario world right if you're aware of that the dogs chasing the, uh, the bow wows yeah <laughs> or not bow wows the uh wanwans and uh yeah so shigeru miyamoto uh yeah he was being chased by a dog when he was younger and he had 
like a recollection of it. I shouldn't yeah, laugh about it, but it, it is it is really funny <laughs> just imagining like this tiny person with his face just running away from running away from a dog, <laughs> and then he makes a game about it or not about it, but <laughs> just yeah, having those kind of ideas make uh, just the material for your creative expression. I think that's like again, that's what Itoi was doing. That that's what. Uh, uh, Andy Kaufman was doing. It's kind of you draw on things that are fundamental to your experience and like right. what makes you who you are, and that kind of creates something that really resonates with people. I think. So speaking about speaking of 1990s Japanese media, uh, are you familiar with Satoshi Kon, the Japanese film director? Yeah, he directed anime films. Are you about to talk about Perfect Blue? Yeah, Perfect Blue. So I'm not sure if it's been stated anywhere that Okada's death was an inspiration in some way of that film. But I think the parallels there are like very uncanny. So I'd be very shocked if uh, Kon was an influence in some way by that situation. When I or like was... at least the death of innocence in the idol world. Like that whole idea came about from the death of Okada. Right. I um, When I was doing my little crash course... Um right before this on sort of the history of the pop idol industry uh mm. perfect blue uh still images are popping up on these videos and i'm like ah i, w- I wish i could watch that right before this because oh, so I, you haven't seen it yet i saw it a lot like a few years ago and i i just forgot yeah. about kind of what it definitely happened. begs a rewatch it's a fascinating film i, I also really want to rewatch uh, paranoia agent but that can't that's yeah ridiculously hard to find uh, yeah, I remember I watched it about four years ago, I think. It's good. I watched all of this stuff four years ago. I kind of A friend introduced me to Paprika. Right. And that was an interesting and one, through too. That, yeah, through that, I just got really interested with all of his films. And uh, uh, Hirasawa, Sus- Susumu Hirasawa, the, uh, the composer for a lot of his films, I got really obsessed with his work, too. And I still, I still listen to a lot of his stuff, take inspiration from it. So um, today, when I when I was listening to your uh, your album, yeah, to go back to Jisatsu, <laughs> I uh, I do have to say I I really enjoyed it. It was really um, kind of surreal, but it had sort of like the somber sort of mm. uh, thought provoking kind of kind of tone to it. It it took its time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and, um, certainly. I'm just wondering, kind of like what what inspired that sort of like. Um, I don't know how to really put it, but slow, prov- provocative kind of sound. Uh, mm. And, and one, one thing that was also really interesting was how you kind of sprinkled in what I'm guessing were uh, Okada's uh, vocals yeah. and, and some yeah, other it's Japanese. All, it's all Okada. Every sample in there and every really? instance of a voice is taken from an interview with her or from her music or from a commercial too. There's a few commercial uh audio clips from uh, commercials that she did interesting really yeah so actually uh, i'll address your question first but then i want to discuss kind of uh like the how the technical like how this album was put together Uh, i think there's definitely some interesting points to make there but first of all just the slow drawn out quality of this album uh a lot of it comes from my first thought was well, my first thought was I wanted to make a Vaporwave album again. 
it's been a long time. I've been in the community for so long. I've uh, listened to a lot of Vaporwave since my first album. And I even like wrote articles on it too. So I think I had like a more advanced understanding of it than I did when I first got into it. Uh, and so I kind of wanted to, you know, test my knowledge, like test what I had learned and, uh, you know, put it to practical use. And so, uh, so it's recontextualization, right? A lot of vaporwave has to do with recontextualizing nostalgic content in a new way, often a very surreal way. So for the, the subject matter was very dark, right? We're talking about someone's death. We're talking about the misery that someone was feeling in their life. Right. And maybe the contradiction between their internal self, uh, kind of the, the mental world of Keosato and uh, the exterior persona of uh, Okada Yukiko and a kind of the, the contradiction that, that was happening between those two uh, states of being. And so there's some, definitely something really interesting to do with that because Okada's music, if you listen to the music that she released, which was, of course, uh, written by people who were not her and the lyrics are written by people who are not her as well. Uh, like uh, Seiko Matsuda wrote the lyrics um, for for one of her songs, at least. And I don't know, are you familiar with, I, I believe her name is Ma Maria Takeuchi? Takeuchi? Was that She's the, the one that was... Um... Plastic, plastic Love? Oh no, never mind. <laughs> okay, she there. There's kind of for some reason because of YouTube algorithms, this album Plastic Love, this Japanese, this '80s Japanese pop album, became really big in the Western world. No, no, for like a I, week uh, or two. I do know what you're talking about. I just um, yeah, I saw that, which is funny because I actually saw a, a video analyzing that whole situation. Um, Interesting. So I don't know too much about it. I just know the album and. The basics of why people know about it yeah it's really interesting how that kind of thing can happen um, but this album i guess because of its ubiquity the fact that it was everywhere for a period of time it became really big in the future funk community the future funk uh, world which is another genre of music that is related to vaporwave but it's more like dance music based uh so takeuchi uh, so she was like a big name in the vaporwave future funk world and like it doesn't mean anything but she wrote a lot of Okada's music just to tie it back to the vaporwave world right. uh, yeah so Okada Yukiko wasn't singing her own stuff this material that she was actually putting forth is very light it's very innocent a lot of the songs had to do with like a girl growing up and wanting to enter into the adult world and like the concerned like wanting to wear lipstick and things like that yeah some uh, of the lyrics of these of these uh pop battle songs are a little strange yeah i mean I, they're they are natural for the audience that they're targeting like I, I like i'm not sure who the audience of pop idols in the modern age are oh we know i think maybe it's <laughs> i think it's evolved a little bit but at least in the early days i think the main impetus was these were supposed to be models for young girls. And so their songs, a lot of the time, would have to do with things that these girls were concerned with. In the case of Okada Yukiko, I think her audience base was a lot younger than maybe some of the other pop idols. 
um, because she was younger too. She got into it when she was 16. So maybe take usually typically in the, in the pop music world, it's the same with actors, icons like celebrities that the media pushes forward to help sell things to young people. They're usually a few years older than their target audience base just because kids look up to people who are a little bit older than them right so okada's fan base would have maybe been like 14 something like that so she thinks she her at least her early music it changes a bit later on but her early music is like stuff that 14 year old girls would be concerned about so it's nothing it's nothing like too sophisticated it's like going on your first date or like having a crush on someone and that kind of thing so very light stuff. So what interested me was taking this kind of thing, because this is what she was forced to sing about when uh, maybe her internal world was starting to grow a little bit more unsure and unsteady. So I wanted to take this very light sounding music and create and recontextualize it into something that was a bit more ominous and maybe a, something that suggested some something uh, more depth, like something more deeper depths going on within this person's mind. Uh, so it's like, yeah. it's like she's singing this, this really light, pleasant sounding song, but as, yeah. as you can hear in the album, uh, you've kind of taken her voice there's, and you've not, not twisted it. Yeah. You've, you've, uh, it. brought it down to sound real dark and uh, deep yeah. and ominous. And, and what fascinates me about that is this is only possible through vaporwave, right? So I thought this was the perfect album. This was the perfect genre for conveying the ideas in this music. I think you're right about that, actually. Yeah. The only other thing I can yeah. I can think to do with with that sort of music, and it, it might still even be vaporwave, is like you know how video games they'll use music to sort of add on to the atmosphere or the uh, emotion that you're supposed mm -hmm. to be feeling uh, at certain scenes in games. Um, that's really the only other time I could think to use that's a good point. experimental music like this for something like that you know yeah like you could easily take footage of okada yukiko singing something and then maybe overlay a different kind of music and that would uh, give another type of recontextualization or take samples of her music and kind of compose on top of it that'd be which is also possible that'd be pretty but i did a lot of that in this album too there's lots of instances in this where uh, like a lot of the stuff I've done in Vaporwave, and I think this is also common for many artists, is they will take a sample of something and they will maybe add like a new bass line or they'll add uh, a piano line or an electric keyboard line that kind of gives it more jazz-esque harmonies. Mm -hmm. Or in this case, it gives it sometimes more somber harmonies. So that's another element of the recontextualization is it takes it out of the original musical world it developed in at first uh, or the original the music world the musical world it existed in when it was first written for its intended audience and then it t puts it into a more ominous uh circumstance more ominous type of sound world so i did a lot of that in this album uh, and again uniquely the type of thing you can do in vaporwave so that was a speaking, very interesting project to work with. Speaking of ominous, and also, I think one, and this kind of goes back to what you were saying about people making, uh, conceptualizing things about, about situations. Um, 
one big mm-hmm. thing back then and I think a little bit even today was that what was going on in that industry uh no one on the outside knew about I think there's mm-hmm. a lot of that yeah. today. I think that's very that's very true of the pop world today. Yeah, right, right. It, it, especially in, in well, not especially, but even in in the West. Uh, I think uh, we get like the tabloid version of it, but we don't really know right. the day to day life of a lot of celebrities. And there's so much or, weird like rumors and stuff that come out of especially yeah. the music industry. There's tightly guarded secrets. It's true. It's real strange, real strange stuff. And 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 you know, um the saying like uh, there's a there's a grain of truth to every lie or something like that yeah 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 that saying is pretty ominous uh, when you when you when hear some of the these weird rumors world. yeah so back in back in those days uh just from what i remember um you kind of got locked in um and they were they were uh recruiting people or girls, uh, as young mm. as uh, men too. There are also men idols. There are now, but I think back too. back in her time, I think it was pretty much exclusively women. And then, like in the nineties, huh. they started uh, recruiting men. And then after that, they started getting like it was okay to be like older than you know sixteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's it's just like the modeling industry. There's kind of a severe age threshold. Right, and and they were recruiting uh, young girls as as young as eight or nine. Wow, that's pretty pretty nuts. So you have to think, you're giving some some corporation basically uh, eight or more years of your life rights to your child. Yeah, yeah, rights to yourself. Or yeah, and she only it's dealt with crazy. three ish years of that three years so but because of that i guess she wasn't acclimatized to that lifestyle either so it was kind of a shock to her yeah right and um you know it's kind of i I hate to uh compare it to the military but the military is pretty rigorous uh in their training just as i've heard that uh idols in japan uh you know same story and those two things, what they share in common is that people, you know, they are rigorous and people are not going to respond the same. Everyone's different. So I kind of feel like maybe she was one of those cases where she, She's you know, like the private pile of uh, the Japanese music industry, you're saying. Yeah, and she, uh, right, <laughs> that's a good, that's a good reference. Um, mm-hmm. She just couldn't, couldn't take it. And so. Maybe. That's projecting again. Right, right, and I, I hate still, it because it's like, what else possible. can you, what else can you really do, you know? Especially yeah. when you have to, uh, especially when you're talking about it. Yeah, there's no harm in it, of course. Right, it's right. It's just right. Uh, a matter of keeping in mind that, you know, whatever we say, we're coming from a limited perspective. But yeah, that's a good analogy. There is, it's it's a very strenuous thing becoming an idol. I'm not sure if it's the same. It might be even more strenuous today because there's more money at stake. Right. But yeah, like you hear stories about, um, like I'm I'm mostly knowledgeable at this point about Okada's history, but I did do a lot of reading a few years ago. Like that's how I discovered Okada was I was really fascinated with the politics in uh, the record industry. And that led me to the Japanese record industry and just seeing about like what the power structures there look like. And uh, that led me to hearing about Okada's situation. Um, but yeah, so it could be even more crazy today, but definitely when she was doing things, like you would be cut off from your family. 
you'd, you'd be so busy, you'd be um, like, you'd have dance lessons constantly, you'd have singing lessons, you'd have like etiquette lessons, how to speak, how to act, how to do interviews properly. All of those like, things, all of those things are still in practice today. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah. And there's, there's actually one uh, <laughs> that I thought was particularly mean, which is uh, to, to dissuade their, you know, workers, I guess, from, mm. from dating because that's still like a big no-no in the pop idol world you, you can't have yeah. romance you have to you know remain pure or whatever and yeah keep that image well. um to to do that they will uh keep your schedule a mystery to you <laughs> until yeah. like the day of yeah, I read about that's that nuts well. so you can't like uh uh you can't uh, figure things out with a lover beforehand to meet right secretly because you don't know uh, and you can't miss a meeting either, because I'm sure you'll get into a lot of trouble. Because, especially, especially in Japan. Yeah, like they're very in the business world there. At least they're very concerned with uh, with making your deadlines. That's two things you don't do in Japan. You don't um, you don't miss things, and you don't be like even a minute late. Punctuality is, yeah. is super important over there, and I, I think I kind of appreciate that because. As you know, someone doing this, it's pretty important to me too. <laughs> mm, totally. I mean, that's the same. I think that's all over. But maybe it's uh, it's practice at like even lower levels of business in the Japanese world. Right. But of course, in the Western world too. Like if you're doing high level business, it's still very, very, very rigorous in that way. I think. Uh, when when money when lots of money is being transferred around, people start to act strange and can can get very exact about what they want money makes you do stupid stuff um people act strangely and well i say stupid um what i mean is um things you wouldn't normally do and i actually have a good yeah a good example that today um somebody on my twitter follows some guy named mr beast and uh mr beast yeah I, i guess he's like a like a youtuber and you know, I'm not exactly rich, <laughs> but mm. he had something that said, "Hey, retweet this. It's my birthday. I want to give some random guy ten thousand dollars." And I, my instant reaction was to retweet it, but I stopped <laughs> myself. I said, mm. "No, I will not do this. This is ridiculous. I'm not going to fall into this person's hands just to basically give mm. him another another um, you know count on his on his retweet." Yeah. Because I guarantee okay. like you that's the, all that it's was. It's just like the lottery, right? Even if he, like, I don't know if Mr. Well, Mr. Beast, I'm not sure if Mr. Beast uh, was actually going to give money out. Possibly he was. Exactly. You know? And that was Maybe the other thought. But, like, the chances of you winning that are quite low. Just like the lottery or, like, if you were to play bingo. Exactly. There is no like, chance. That's the funny part. It's it's yeah, it's literally, going to Vegas. like, less than one. and Or less than 1%. And, um, Mm. so I had to actually had to, you know, when I stopped myself, I had to basically just realize I'm throwing my integrity away doing something like this, especially when I'm trying to build, you look like a fool when you, exactly. I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) So money will make people do some dumb stuff and it'll make people do some mean stuff. Yeah. And integrity uh, is always far more important than, than any kind of wealth. Right. And I think it lasts longer. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think after um, the World War II um, sort of financial flush that they kind of went through, 
in Japan. Um, I can't confirm it nor deny it, but I get a feeling that the whole country sort of went into the scramble to try to make all of its money back, you know, or yeah. try to build its economy yeah, totally. back up. And they did. It worked, you know. And Amazingly I like, enough. Yeah. I'm always fascinated about yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, the idol business was part of that for sure. Yeah, it's a fascinating success story. But you also have to think about all the people who, uh, you know, all the miserable situations that created for people. Right. Like all the, you know, all the overtime that people had to do. People would have had to consume their lives with their work in order to build that kind of successful economy. Definitely a difficult thing. Like success on a national scale comes at a price. So while I find it fascinating what they actually managed to accomplish, it also kind of shows you how willing uh, the nation is to make that kind of sacrifice of personal well-being, right, uh, right. which is maybe not so good of a thing. And um, I guess that kind of segues into, did, did, did you watch that video I, uh, I sent you? I didn't have a chance to. I meant to. It's okay. I, I can to. I can, watch I can it describe it. It definitely it really interests me. I want to Okay, so basically what that was about and this is just another good example of um uh, I guess that time period's corporatism yeah. in Japan. Um so, you know, Japanese game shows, right? Yeah. They're all pretty big there. Yeah, they're, they're real big. Uh a lot of times they're real silly and humiliating and that's kind of the mm -hmm. point. It's it's is for people at home to see this, you know, ridiculous display of people with silly hats on running around naked, yeah, uh, and and doing whatever. <laughs> it's, yeah, I'm not, I'm not even sure there's a goal. The very austere business world that many people find themselves in in daily life. Yeah, so there's this um, there's this show. I don't remember the name. I think it was like uh, Den Denpa Shonen something, and. No, long story short, they they aren't running a show anymore because of kind of the practices they had Ooh. on their contestants. But one one real big example, and I think this was back in the early '90s, kind of in the the infancy of like streaming uh, on the internet and stuff, where you had to actually go to like the yeah. web page to see a, a live stream of internet stuff. So it might have mm -hmm. actually been later '90s, but mm -hmm. um, there was this the show and. Uh, this guy named Nasubi, I can't remember his full name. He was a aspiring comedian. Mm -hmm. And he wins this this uh the sweepstakes basically from their show and comes to find out that by winning that sweepstake he uh more or less entered into a contract to be on the on, on this uh oh. skit uh skit thing that they were doing not skit okay. but there's a cash one of their weird games yeah yeah there's there's this it's yeah. this game and so they you know they uh they stick him in a room and he's uh i believe he's locked in the room and he's left with nothing no clothes no anything hmm. uh and the only way that he can like eat or or get anything uh is he has to there's like a magazine rack on the wall of the room. And so he has to fill out these sweepstakes. Mm -hmm. And after he gets okay. like so many, uh, so many prizes up to a certain amount of yen, uh, they were going to let him yeah. out. Well, it took him, uh, I think it was 15 months to get out of that room. What? 15 months uh, of never leaving that room. 
and they live streamed the did whole he, thing every day. Did he manage to get food to eat? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He he ate. He he managed to get food, and he had to figure out how to do it all wow, on his own. What a contract that he signed up for, and not and, and not really even know about it. Yeah, not really have consent on it. You kind of have to wait, sign your life over in order to gain your prize money. And what's even yeah, that's an unusual situation. What's, what's really crazy is after he won, they uh, they blindfolded him, moved him to another room in like Korea, and then they had him do the same thing for. A, but he had to like get so much money uh, up to like a first class plane ticket, and he did it in like record time because he'd been doing this for over a year. Yeah. You got a skill. He could do that for a full-time job after that. Yeah, they they, they did it huh. two wow. about two times. They did two switcheroos, and for the final mm-hmm. reveal, like the final, okay, we're finally done messing with you kind of thing, they mm-hmm. put him uh, like in the actual studio with the, the audience and everything, and they put him in a, mm-hmm. a box that was like a like a present box, you know. Mm-hmm. But the inside looked like the room, and they reveal it, and he's like, <laughs> he's got clothes on, but he'd been naked for so long, he he yeah. didn't like wearing clothes oh so yeah he's, he's stripped on camera yeah so he's in the box thinking he's back in this situation and he just takes his clothes off and they open this box and he's just naked in front of all these people wow and it's like just, a horror story right and so this is like a re- this is a real thing that happened and i mean i guess he's okay now you know that's that's over yeah but that's the kind of stuff that they were known for doing in the 80s and I guess the 90s. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's toned down quite a bit since then for sure. But that's the kind yeah. of money-making stuff. And the reason they kept doing that was because it was so popular. Um, yeah, to, true. To you put, vote with your dollars, right? Right, you right. Spend your money toward is you know, what the corporate overlords will give you more of. Or your TV, I guess, in this case. <laughs> but um, Yeah, TV will give you more of but to put that in perspective, like um, I think the highest rated Game of Thrones episode was, you know, uh, sixteen point five mil or something. Okay. Um, at the peak of this sh- this live stream, they had seventeen million people back in late nineties. Wow, that's nuts. What? Oh, um, I've never. Right. Interesting. And so these people who just uh, wanted to make money, they just, they wouldn't let it go. Yeah. They're like, I, we're, we're not going to let this cash cow go, more or less. And that's yeah. what they are still doing. Uh, yeah, like to, we said, money makes people do very strange things sometimes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And taking that back to Yukiko Okada, money and fame making people do very strange things, I think the very fact that she went into the idol industry was a strange situation perhaps motivated by a desire for fame again like we don't know why she wanted to go into this industry but like think about the thought process of why somebody would want to become a pop star yeah, i don't like did you ever want to become a like a, a pop star like a famous rock singer when you're a kid <laughs> uh, i won't lie yeah yeah i did That's have a, a stint where i wanted <laughs> oh, yeah, to be I... like a rock guy yeah <laughs> I've taught uh I've taught a few summer camps for kids, music related summer camps, and it like gives them an opportunity to uh, get acquainted with instruments and guitars and whatnot. And so many of them, they come out of this camp like just hungry for fame. Like they got their first chance of playing guitar, and now they want to like conquer the world. So I think there's like a there's a thing in us like we want 
to be liked by people and by a lot of people. And the pop music industry, or like even just the, yeah, like the music theme within art in general, for a lot of people that seems like an avenue toward being celebrated by the masses. And uh, so recently I've, so my Japanese skills are up there, but they're still very limited. So to practice, I've been going through Okada Yukiko's Wikipedia page and trying to translate it because it's vastly more extensive than the English page. I think there's maybe four paragraphs on the English page, but like it goes on and on for the Japanese one. And uh, so I was reading recently about how when she was younger, she was actually a very talented painter. And she wanted to be, when she grew up, she wanted to be like a painter or a manga artist. Um, and she apparently started taking lessons in like, in a like classical painting technique and, and a professional, uh, professional illustration when she was maybe in like grade five or grade six. Mm -hmm. And you can, you can go on Google and you can look up some of her paintings that she did and some of the reproductions she did of like Renoir and uh, Da Vinci. And she was really skilled such a young person she had a lot of ability and so it always it like fascinates me why would she just drop all of that all of a sudden and like devote herself completely to wanting to do singing which she previously didn't have a whole lot of experience with um yeah that's that's actually a pretty good point she could have had a very happy fulfilling life like making her own art uh, doing something she was like naturally talented at but maybe the fame bug bit her and she suddenly thought that like she wants to because her idol was uh who was it kawaii naoko naoko kawaii i think naoko kawaii was uh, also another idol from the 70s i think that uh okada looked up to and in a few interviews she talks about this too and uh, so I think, like, I don't know if it was just her. Maybe there was a few people that she saw on TV. And I guess it's like those kids that I work with that learn to play the guitar. Like, they realize that, wow, if I do this thing, then I could, like, win the jackpot and all these people will like me. And so maybe Okada felt a little bit of that. Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's interesting because I'm pretty sure... So I, I, I'm not sure many people, at least... Not me, anyway, because I'm sure we all have our own ways of actually processing thought. But, like, yeah. I can definitely tell you that somewhere in the back of my mind and my subconscious, that's a thing that I want, right? Yeah. Because anytime you in, do something... That's just a natural human thing to have. Like, yeah. we're wired to want people to like us. Right. And what's, what's, what's the largest most momentous fulfillment of that it's being a celebrity of course and there's, millions there's, of people are watching you and enjoying what you do and it's it's really funny to me when you have like a famous person um you probably i'm, I'm guessing you, you, you don't watch wrestling but um no nah, there <laughs> i don't I blame you it's kind of crappy Although, these days yeah <laughs> i i don't know many people in canada that are huge into wrestling that's really a funny. lot of american friends i have seem to really really be into it it's uh, it's real big over here, but what's really funny is most of the talent comes from Canada. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> like like the real big names, yeah. I'm not familiar with any of them. But, but um, it's interesting to hear. There, there's a guy who's been in the business 
forever. He's been probably since the late eighties. Um, and he, he's like a, like a manager on one of the big shows now because he's been in the business for so long. And if you go on, if you go on his, like his Wikipedia page, there's a quote from him basically saying like, I, I'd rather spend my time with my, my animals and my wife than anybody, like any people. Mm -hmm. He says people discuss (laughs) any people. Does not including his wife? Well, I guess she's. I guess she's different. <laughs> but okay, that, yeah. No, I get it. Like instead of the the masses out there, he'd rather be with his his intimate. And I kind of wonder. Companions. I kind of wonder if if he got that just because he was never very social, which is funny because if you're wrestling, mm. I, I kind of feel like you have to be a little social. Mm. Um, or maybe it just came from like bad interactions with fans or something, you know. Mm. And these are these are people yeah. who are well liked. It's kinda like it's kind of the thing of maybe the dream, the illusion of the like the exhilaration you get when you become famous. It I think it dies off very quickly. I mean, I don't know, I'm not a huge celebrity, but just maybe, from maybe stories I've heard and from looking <laughs> at the lives of people, like it's of course it's me projecting again, just like with the Okada situation. Yeah. But like you get the sense with a lot of these people that like it gets old being recognized everywhere you go and having rabid fans come at you and of course just the thing of not knowing who to trust like do people like you just because you're on tv or do people like you because you have good qualities uh and i imagine it can be a really disheartening thing sometimes too especially if like it it's the same with fame or money i imagine that it can kind of make you very cynical because you can see that people will treat you really well not necessarily because you're like you're good and that you're kind and that you uh you are virtuous and you like respect people they won't respect you because you respect them they'll respect you because you have this worldly success and that can really be a scary thing i think like just thinking about it it can be a scary thing but when you are in the position of someone like, uh, uh, like I don't know, Okada Yukiko, or if you are Elvis, if you are uh, Jim Carrey, <laughs> if you're Robin Williams, like then it's kind of I imagine it can leave a bad taste in your mouth, right? right. Uh, just like seeing how crazy people can get when they're in the presence of someone who is uh, is a, a big celebrity. Just like money makes you do crazy things, being in the presence of a supposedly "quote unquote" important person can make people do crazy things as well. Yeah, I um, it's funny you should say that because I remember being when I booked my first interview uh, on this thing. Yeah. Um, I remember being just so motivated and ecstatic, and yeah, you know, I have to do this. I can't not do this. If I don't do this. I am a failure and I don't deserve to ever try to do this again, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. and, and yeah, that, that's totally. died down quite a bit, but it all had to do with the fact that I was going to be talking to someone who I barely knew who made a game that I, that I kind of liked, you know? Yeah. It's really totally. interesting it how, how kind of produces this black and white thinking. Yeah. Or yeah. Or, or like, or, or even like, like a, like a low and high kind of, kind of, I guess it's the same yeah. thing. It's just cause I, mm-hmm. I definitely felt, you know, sort of, down here so to speak and i felt like okay well this guy's actually accomplished something and it's it's mm-hmm. somewhat successful made a video so game that's no small thing on the switch no less uh, <laughs> yeah i got a release on the switch and that's all that's a really big deal these days 
Um, uh, another thing, another thing that's really fascinated me recently is Toby Fox, right? You know of Undertale. Uh, yeah, like his his situation. I remember him. I used to be because Earthbound was a big thing for me when I was younger. So I used to go to the Starmen.net forums a lot. Yeah. And I remember when he was he went by the name of Radiation there, and uh, he was pretty active in the community. But I had heard recently that he went back and deleted every single post that he made. And he must have been a part of that community for over a decade, I think. I don't know, but from what I remember, he's on there for quite a while. You know, and it's just it's just fear because you know he was pretty he was pretty young. I think he's twenty seven right now, so he would have been pretty young when he first started posting things on there. And I imagine there could be some embarrassing stuff that you know could be dangerous for someone who is now in the public spotlight. Oh, absolutely. What he doesn't know is you can get on the Wayback Machine and go find it anyway. But <laughs> um, Yeah, really? I'm, I'm pretty I sure that's that. how it works. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I could be wrong. Yeah, me, I, I guess, yeah, the Wayback Machine does preserve a lot of things. Like, I, I have been a part of websites that have since lost their uh, their uh, their server, lost the the domain, mm-hmm. and but you can still see it if you go back. Yeah, interesting. And I don't, you know, I don't know Toby personally. I've never met him. Um, mm. I liked Undertale. I like his music, uh, but mm-hmm. but I can kind of understand that thought process because even even me before this, I had um, I had a, a podcast I did with the two other guys uh, who I won't name drop, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I actually still have the episodes up except for one, and the mm-hmm. reason for that being I said something potentially that could get me in trouble, and normally I wouldn't care. And here's yeah. why, because back in those days, you couldn't get, you know, basically Twitter mobbed into losing mm. your job or something. That's a reality of social media today. That pressure, all that yeah. pressure on companies. You know, if you're associated, if you're associated with anyone who's done even something slightly controversial, you know, depending on what your definition of controversial is. Uh, so I guess even me yeah. now still. <laughs> um, that's that's another fascinating thing about that's uh, like an element of the horror of social media is uh, social media has kind of transformed everyone into their own Okada Yukiko. <laughs> yeah, I guess We're you're all, right. Social media kind of it encourages people to act like they're celebrities. Instagram is one of the Instagram's whole model is built around that, right? It's kind of creating this platform where you can basically present your lifestyle. I think that's the purpose uh, that that Instagram pushes forward, like taking pictures of yourself doing all these very exciting things. And it is kind of meant to create a persona. And it's meant to create like a a celebrity-esque persona. And, you know, people want people to follow them because they want a taste of that type of fame. And maybe that's the type of situation Maybe that's the motivation that got Okada Yukiko to start applying for all these talent shows in the first place. So maybe if Okada Yukiko were alive today, if she were born, uh, like if she were my age, for example, if she were born in the 90s, then uh, very possibly instead of trying to become a pop idol, she'd be an Instagram influencer. <laughs> and no less miserable. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure there's... Yeah, and there's just so many people who are in that situation today as well, I think. 
Yeah, and I'm 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 really hoping as I know I keep bringing it back to me, but I I relate so much with yeah no this that's, the beginnings that's of this yeah I love these connections that are being made and it's it's really nuts because um, I think that's one of the that's one of the fascinating things about Okada's story is it's it's just inherently interesting but I think the most fascinating part about it is that you can draw parallels with so many important areas that we haven't scratched we have we haven't even scratched the surface of all the readings you can do into that <laughs> situation what it says about like celebrity and social media and fame and uh, and motivation. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. What were you saying? <laughs> um, I was, I was just going to say it's, it's pretty crazy because you, uh, you kind of start seeing like the more you kind of delve into all these different, uh, fads and industries. And I, I guess this will kind of be like my personal closing statement on, on this. Cause we're actually, <laughs> we're over an hour now. Uh, I'm sure. Yeah. We'll wrap it up then. Now we, this has been good though. I, I really enjoyed this. Um, yeah, but yeah. we, Man, we as a culture, and I can only really speak for us in America and kind of Canada too, mm-hmm. because we 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 tend to cross over a lot. Um, yeah, yeah, in many ways. It's just nuts how many influences that we share together, and sometimes don't even realize it. You know, influences in what way? Sorry. So we have all these like uh, Instagram or TikTok creators oh, that, or Twitter, yeah, the things that influence right. Us. And I may not be a creator on these things. However, I, and it's mostly through meme stuff, but I do watch <laughs> a lot of this stuff. Um, and yeah. I am still connected to it in some way, shape or form. And depending on how, if I ever want to use it on how I use it, you know, I could potentially still be in the same shoes just as we, uh, you know, I, I release stuff on SoundCloud and other um, uh, platforms hmm. just as you do. And we do t- different things, sort of in the same medium. It's it's pretty, it's yes. pretty nuts. So, yeah, and that's true. And you know, we're in in some shape or form, we are on the same level of kind of those people pursuing Instagram influencer fame. We're creating content, putting it on the internet, and even though neither of us are huge celebrities, neither of us are Okada Yukikos or Robin Williams, or uh, or uh jim carries at the same time we are putting content out there and we do have to be careful to some degree about what we say and uh kind of our our interactions with people now i think it's actually not as huge of an issue as you would think because i i think if you're in the right state of mind and you're sensitive enough to the culture then you know you won't really end up saying anything that could get you in deep trouble because you kind of know like i think if you just follow the basic precepts of being a nice person you know you want to uh you're like sympathetic to people's problems and you kind of like strive for making the world a better place i think in most circumstances you will avoid getting into trouble like just avoid being petty and being hateful and you can avoid that kind of thing Uh, but at the same at the same time we are with everything that we post and say and and all that we are always just just the fact that we have to be conscious that we are creating an artificial persona so to to say because there's a difference between your private 
persona that you have when you interact with your friends or with your dog and your wife, like that wrestler, and the the public persona that you present when you create something for a large amount of people to consume. So like if I write an article or if I do a podcast interview or if I even release an album, like these are all very public things. Mm-hmm. Just like Okada, just like this fascinating dichotomy between Keio Sato and Okada Yikiko. Uh, there was there was the the girl who was an artist, the hardworking, uh, you know, very, very passionate individual who had all these big dreams in life. And then there was the fantasy persona of this idealized, uh, pure figure of the pop celebrity. And there's quite a rift between those two. But that same rift exists within lots of people today in the age of the internet. Like your Facebook account, your Facebook profile is basically your Okada Yukiko. And you are the, and you are the Keio Sato sitting there, uh, miserable behind your computer, <laughs> not living up to the dream image that you present. I mean, maybe you're not miserable. That's, I mean, that's, there's very, there's many different ways of interacting with social media. Uh, it's just kind a of a skill. Interesting metaphor for sure. Uh. <laughs> totally. Um, uh, and yeah, there's so much, there's so much to think about. And I think so few people have the skills to properly navigate the social media world. I think lots of people learn it, learn it on the job, so to speak. So they uh, they get a sense of actually what they should, what to do, how to kind of look after your mental well-being while you're interacting with the digital realm and how to not get sucked into this addictive world of uh, of, of things like uh, pursuing the dopamine rush of seeing new messages, oh, uh, of getting man. likes. Like that's a dangerous territory to get into. Don't don't get me balance. started on that. <laughs> that's that's been a that's but, been a whole new addiction I've been having to fix. Yeah, <laughs> it's a crazy thing though, because when you think about it, you know, it doesn't mean anything at all that somebody made this arbitrary uh, option to like a message. Uh, to a certain degree, it's useful for gauging people's interest in a subject. So, just as a business person, somebody who has a podcast, uh, who, who's trying to build a podcast, it's good to know what content people approve of. So it's kind of like taking ballots, right? It's like people are voting for what they like the best. Right. But it's important to divide that from valuation. Uh, it's important not to uh, have have a sense of like value placed on like how good your content is based on how many people like it, or even what people say about it. Uh, it's a very mysterious thing, the connection between what people say, how they present. Uh, the reaction to something because I mean I think this is true universally this is probably true for you that uh, like sometimes you can listen to music like your favorite musicians and it just brings about this sensation there's a feeling in you that you can't really express like you you love it for some reason it creates these impressions that like words cannot describe and, you know, maybe you'll never get a chance to meet, meet this artist and tell them how you feel about their music. But there's a very personal interaction that happens there that maybe will never leave this world. And I think that kind of thing is very common. And so you can't really the influence that you have on people just based on how they express themselves 
because there's so much that people do not express and there's so much that a simple like does not say true yeah well um before we wrap up i guess we should wrap up yeah any <laughs> last thoughts uh wh one question i definitely forgot to ask was what does jisatsu mean <laughs> jisatsu means suicide okay Nihongo. well that answers that <laughs> I, yeah. I totally and... should have went in with that jeez <laughs> <laughs> no it's a good thing to save to the end jisatsu and you can turn it into a verb by adding suru to it jisatsu suru jisatsu shimashita Ah, interesting. Hi. Sarah. Yeah, and you. Hmm? Uh, I was gonna say, is there anything that you want to plug or, or talk about before we sign out? Yeah, well, everyone can check out the album, give it a listen. Also, one thing I wanted to mention was, so a lot of vaporwave is based off of samples of old music, and a lot of vape. There seems to be a very fat. There's a fascination with Japanese in vaporwave, I guess because it's a foreign language. Uh, and the characters are like inherently very interesting looking. Right. So it kind of adds to this mystique in the vaporwave world because most Westerners cannot understand Japanese text. But I I have the fortune of being able to interp interpret to some degree, to understand to some degree the Japanese language. Uh, and I'm always improving. So I went to, I took the great lengths to try and make it so every single instance of Japanese text that's spoken in this album has some kind of significance. So hopefully like a Japanese listener would be able to get uh, out of it than your, your typical uh, Westerner who's interested in vaporwave. And so I also do something called Japanese through vaporwave on my Twitter account. And I also have a section on my website for it. So recently I've been wanting to go through Jisatsu and present uh, the, the the lyrics, basically the lyrics, the samples that I use, kind of show how that reflects uh, meaning within the album. Because I did a few interesting things. Like for a few, I, um, I took fragments of Okada's voice and it made her say things that she does not say uh, in the actual lyrics. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. I caught on to a couple of those. Mm -hmm. So, for example, there's a... There's there's one song of her where she sings about uh, being princess. Uh, I am always your little princess. Coupled <laughs> in one song, but then it starts to it starts to uh, develop into her saying "itsumo uh, I'm always sad. And there's a few other instances of that too. Like I even have her say. Jisatsu uh, at some point, just by uh, cutting together audio. Wow! Now that you said that, I actually uh, I think that that sample came back to it just hit me right back in the head. Yeah, and yeah. there's a few things like that. Like I make her say, uh, yeah, a lot of more darker words that she would not have said in her actual lyrics. Unfortunately, so that, my... that's the kind of re recontextualization that fascinates me. So just closing thoughts, closing statements. Another project to follow up on the release is I want to create something to maybe give people interested in learning Japanese or just interested in going deeper with the album Jisatsu hmm. the opportunity to uh, to understand what's happening uh, with the language in it. So I'm going to make a Japanese through vaporwave uh, segment that details what's happening with the text and with the language within the album. 
so yeah, that's going to be another a fun follow up to this project. Whenever I get some extra time, I'm I'm definitely planning on at least checking it out for sure. Um, <laughs> totally. But, yeah. Well, uh, this has been fun. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to to talk about this and talk about Okada's story. Absolutely, the mythology man. Mythology. It was a much deeper conversation than I was kind of expecting to get. So I was, that was really good. True. Um, we got pretty deep. It can get so much deeper too. Uh, so that was uh, Galaxy Brain uh, composer Monk Mez. Uh, <laughs> and uh, check out his new album, Jisatsu. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at um, Mez no you. Okay, you, you say it. <laughs> uh, this is your first Japanese lesson with me. Mez no yume. Mez no yume. Yeah, so like dreams, yume is dreams, of course. Mm. Mez of dreams, I guess was the original intention. Where does mez come from? Mez kind of, I don't know exactly. I think there's a few reasons I chose mez. It sounds a bit like maze. So it's kind of like a corruption of maze of dreams, mez no yume. Interesting. It, it definitely goes well with sort of the mystique of um, your online persona. Oh, thank you. But uh, yeah, <laughs> check out check out him on uh, on Twitter and and SoundCloud. Uh, you can find him on SoundCloud just by and other stuff. Uh, I believe I just I'm not sure. I've only ever found you on SoundCloud. Mezno me. and I have a website too. So uh, just vonico dot com v o n y c o dot c o c o m. And if you and there's also a section on my website for all the Mez stuff. So if you go to music, then click on Mez. Right, uh, you can you know follow me at Dak Talk D A K T A L K, and uh, also I got a Patreon now. I plugged that in the last thing I recorded, which you will see yeah. after this episode. Support, support Dak Talk, everyone, <laughs> and Mez, and uh, other people and that you like. Support uh, people you like, totally, because otherwise we can't do this stuff. <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to uh, the growth of your podcast because you started not long ago. So in March, I'm excited to see where it goes. I can't. Uh, I honestly am still surprised at how many listens. Thanks to the uh, the Allensons. Honestly, I might as well just rename this to, mm. to Act Talk. Um, <laughs> yeah, at this point. But, but no, I'm sure you'll branch out some more, and just the more interesting people you have on the show, the more uh, the more interest it gets, and the more like Okada Yukiko you become, the more entrenched in celebrity <laughs> and fame you become. But thankfully, we have Okada's legacy to kind of give us a sense of the dangers involved in that right. so i think if you do become a huge celebrity and everyone knows you in america and canada then maybe you'll be able to deal with it in a better way i hope so <laughs> anyway um it was great talking with you and uh i will catch you next time and again follow his stuff listen to his album it's really interesting it's got a really different sound uh that i've never really mm. heard just from mm. like an album before so but i'm also kind of a plebeian when it comes to music so <laughs> um mm. i guess i'll talk to you later man see you Dak.
Thank you.